Welcome to the Group Dynamics Dispatch, the official podcast of the Colorado Group Psychotherapy Society. I'm your host, Angela Siliberti, and in this 50-minute hour, we will be featuring guests that use dynamic thinking and therapeutic interventions to bring about growth through group process. It's our hope that in listening to the podcast, you may just be inspired to think more deeply about your own experience in groups, as well as to hear what makes great group leaders tick. If you'd like to support the show, we would encourage you to leave us a review on iTunes or buy one of our recommended books through Amazon that are featured on our webpage, www.cogps.org. Also, check out our social media pages at Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. The links to our profiles will be in the description below. If you have any feedback for the podcast or ideas for future guests, subjects, or panels, please feel free to email us. We're at coloradogroups at gmail.com. We really appreciate your listening and support and hope to see you at one of our events. So I'm your host, Angelo, broadcasting from beautiful Boulder, Colorado, and I'm inviting you to pull up a seat, lend an ear, and hear about what's happening in the ever-evolving circle of group dynamics. So today on the podcast, we have Gay Logan. Gay Logan is the executive director and founder of the International Center for Mental Health and Human Rights and a fellow of the American Group Psychotherapy Association. She is an international trainer, consultant, psychotherapist, and documentary film producer, dedicated to humanitarian relief and focused on the long-term risk of multi-generational complex trauma Ms. Logan has addressed the needs of trauma education and trauma-informed care within refugee and IDS communities for over 35 years. Her research-based trauma curriculum sits at the intersection of neuroscience, group therapy, and contemplative science. In recognition of clinical excellence in her career-long international humanitarian outreach, she is the recipient of the 2015 Social Responsibility Award from the Group Foundation for Advancing Mental Health, sponsored by the American Group Psychotherapy Association. She recently co-authored a contemplative-based trauma and resiliency curriculum for the UN Foundation and is collaborating on a pilot study of contemplative-based trauma and resiliency, CBTRT, for humanitarian aid workers and counselors at refugee camps in northern Uganda. She also co-authored Self-Regulation for Kids K-12, Strategies for Calming Minds and Behavior, providing innovative trauma-informed group interventions to counselors, teachers, and school districts working with at-risk children in wounded communities. Welcome, Gay, to the podcast. We are so excited to have you on today. Oh, thank you, Angelo. It's, it's really, really lovely to be invited and to be with you. Thank Wonderful. you. So I would love it if you would start off telling us a little bit about your initial introduction to group psychotherapy and how you got involved in this mm-hmm. kind of work. Well, it's it goes way back. I mean, I, I uh, was 16 years old, and um, most people don't start group therapy when they're 16. But I had had a trauma in my life. Uh, my first love had been killed by the police. And I was devastated. Um, in fact, I nearly died from typhoid fever um, because my immune system just kind of blew out. 
And when I got out of the hospital, I asked my mother if I could start group therapy. I was already a practicing meditator and really interested in therapy. And my mother had her own beautiful combination of being in psychoanalysis and moving towards Buddhism, which I had kind of encouraged her towards. So this was a psychologically savvy family system. Yeah, wow. yeah, wow. very much so. And so I, I went into group work with in an adolescent group, and it was really very profound for me. And I find it really interesting that my framework around doing group has always from the beginning of my career, been very much rooted in healing trauma. And I'm sure that that links directly to my own experience of healing that loss. Mm -hmm. I'm so struck by the fact that you um, felt inspired to do it for yourself, to really enter a group to address this trauma for yourself, and yeah. the way that that informed probably a real appreciation for what could happen in group work. Yeah. What kind of group was it? You mentioned it was adolescent, but was it a here and now process group or was it a curriculum-based group? It was an ongoing psychodynamic process group for adolescents in Los Angeles, California, you know, which is already kind of hip and, you know, into therapy, you know, but this was in the 70s. And then I got involved with a kind of farm community in Hawaii after I graduated from high school that was devoted to bodywork and rolfing and group therapy and organic farming and some other stuff, some other, at the time, you know, very hippie kind of stuff. Although these were all really fabulous, amazing uh, group therapists from the San Francisco Bay Area. And so I kind of went from there to an undergraduate program where I could do I actually did an undergraduate degree in the 70s in transpersonal psych and was selected nationally to undergo a what would have been a postdoc training at the Gestalt Institute. But they allowed a group of us to go through this one-year training. So really, I've been doing group work or been involved with group work ever since. Okay. I don't do Gestalt, but, uh -huh. you know, it was a starting point. Yeah. How did you find going from a psychodynamic kind of approach to studying more transpersonal and gestalt and everything you were exposed to in an undergraduate work? Well, I had selected this particular program because I already had an interest in some parameter for integrating contemplative practices with Western psychotherapy. I had lived, you know, in Europe and was familiar with different wisdom schools. I was familiar with Tibetan Buddhism. I was familiar with the Gurdjieff school. I was, had studied Sufism. I was actually, you know, really very deeply seeking, probably had to do with early losses in my own life. And I was also interested in being analytically trained. And so I started that process very early in my career, and I uh, was very lucky to have amazing mentors mm. throughout the journey. Mm. So really throughout your whole career, starting very early in your life, there's been a blend between uh, psychoanalysis, psychodynamic approaches, and contemplative approaches yeah. based on the wisdom traditions. Yeah. 
Would you speak to um, how you see those two working together or complementing one another, as well as kind of what you mean by contemplative practice or traditions, in case that's a term that's unfamiliar to some people? I have always been interested in a kind of deeper lens of understanding suffering and working with it in a way that transcends culture so that if I were working in a Muslim community, I would want to understand what practices, uh, what prayer parameters would be part of that framework. If I were working in a Christian community, I would want to understand, you know, I would have similar kinds of questions. I really think about the the mystical traditions and the contemplative practices such as prayer or meditation, breath work, yoga. You know, we're familiar very much in Boulder with Tibetan Buddhist practice and other kinds of Buddhist-oriented trajectories or pathways. But there's lots of contemplative kinds of practices, and I think probably across the spectrum of religious disciplines and and cultural disciplines, we can find commonalities, whether it's in the Kabbalah, you know, the Kabbalistic Jewish tradition in terms of the breath work and kind of merging and dissolution of self and different frameworks for understanding self and different frameworks for understanding suffering. So at a deep level, if we think about what the mental health care delivery system of ancient cultures has been, whether it's a native culture or an indigenous culture, or it's a the Abraham, you know, the lineage of Abraham, or it's you know more of a the Hindu Buddhist cultures, or some of the earlier um, wisdom traditions that sit underneath all of these traditions. What those questions are are really pitched towards are how do we heal, how do we cooperate, how do we care, what's our moral compass. And how do we restore to a set of virtues that are actually dynamically entwined with self-regulatory kinds of mechanisms? And I think what's been really exciting in the last 10 or 15 years is that neuroscience has really finally come on board in a way that can measure and look at different kinds of contemplative practices. And by that, I mean like mindful mindfulness, yoga, breath work, grounding, compassion practice. They come from different traditions, but they have an impact, a regulatory impact on the nervous system. So when I say that I think that this or these practices across culture have been a component of a mental health care delivery system, this, these have been the pathways to healing. One of the things that's really interesting, I did um, a long-term work with the Tibetan Exiled Health Ministry in Dharamsala, bringing uh, a lot of mindfulness practices and neuroscience back into the health ministry, particularly in the division that was working with uh, former political prisoners who'd been tortured. And in the Tibetan diaspora, you often see that there's so many you know, teachers that have come to the West, and the Cultural Revolution really destroyed or systematically dismantled the the natural mental health care delivery system within Tibetan culture, so that 
a lot of Tibetan lay people don't really have as much access to certain practices that maybe a Westerner who's been studying Tibetan Buddhism might have if they're a lay person in Tibetan community, in an exiled Tibetan community, particularly if they're in China or Tibet. So you, you see this, that across the board, I really believe that contemplative practices are rooted in the body. You know, when, you know, I was in Africa in August and it was really com- amazing to watch African dance and to sort of think about it again as a way to shake off, you know, the traumas of what might be part of tribal life. Or you, you know, and you see different very embodied practices across culture. And so I look to contemplative practices as a link to how a community or an individual or a family can learn or relearn skills that can help self-regulation, that can support self-regulation with the concept that trauma isn't really about an incident. It's about the, the nervous system being pitched to fight, flight, or freeze and not being able to come out of that emergency circuitry to an optimal arousal where we're alert and we're calm and we can learn and we can connect and we can love and we're not afraid. Uh, so how do you get, how do you get, how do you deliver skills to a community that's been wounded? And these are the kinds of questions I, I for some reason like to ask mm-hmm. and have been in, in the big, in asking these questions, I've been very humbled by the kinds of doorways that have opened to me to be able to move forward with thinking about that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I really hear you speaking to these contemplative traditions are just ways over hundreds, if not thousands of years that we as human beings have learned to self-regulate and be in our nervous systems in the midst of some of the difficulties and traumas and fragmentation mm-hmm. of life. Mm-hmm. And it seems like such a core piece of your work yeah. that you're wanting to preserve those traditions to continue to educate people about those skills and to really find ways of blending both those contemplative traditions with some contemporary psychological understandings and even the neuroscience. Yeah, absolutely. I remember when I had this, uh, I had been very active with bringing a particular Rinpoche to Austin, Texas, who's the abbot of the Punch and Lamas Monastery. And we were doing fundraisers, and I had put a big fundraiser together called Of Buddhas and Brains, an Exploration of Neural Integration and Contemplative Practice. And it was about 160 therapists, and we had the umbrella of the university, and it was really fun. And um, just had the most remarkable time together, just the whole group. We did movement and dance and with a psychoanalytic dance therapist, and I talked more about attachment theory and did poetry, and Rinpoche taught some compassion practice, and it was just a very rich connection between the the presenters. And after Rinpoche left to go back to India, I remember thinking, is it bringing coals to Newcastle, or could we, could how we've deepened in our understanding of healing by integrating, you know, Tibetan Buddhist practices into our lives and into our clinical work, would it be bringing calls to Newcastle to bring that back 
to Dharamsala, to the exiled health ministry, to the parliament, to as a resource in connection with the neuroscience that's behind it. And the reason why I stay very focused on Buddhist practices is that there's been so much beautiful research in the last 15, 12 years. Mind and Life has been very active in that, but so has Emory, so has Stanford, so has MIT, so has the Max Planck Institute in Leipzig. So we see, you know, some really top-notch research. And mindfulness is it's not easy to research. I mean, research is, itself is not easy to do. It's not easy to do, to do well. Research design is not easy to do well. But there has been some substantive work done that really can give us some solidity around understanding that brain changes can happen and that those brain changes can be instrumental in healing. And particularly in from my lens in looking at how we work with trauma. Mm-hmm. Well, would you speak to how you see kind of working with trauma from this contemplative lens, how that pairs with uh, group psychotherapy? And also, I think as a part of that, would love to hear how you ended up finding your way to the American Group Psychotherapy Association. <laughs> yeah. Well, um, I found my way to the American Group Psychotherapy Association probably was somewhere between 25 and 30 years ago because I love group and because Austin was, even at that time, getting more and more active as an affiliate group. Um, And I was probably one of the, I think as soon as we formed our affiliate group, I I think I was on the board the next year. And then, you know, became president. It was like, it was quite a while ago. So for me, but I think probably I was, you know, hadn't come out of the closet as a Buddhist at that time. So... (laughs) I mean, I might have looked like more like a psychodynamic group psychotherapist, and I did more analytic therapy. I was trained by Christopher Bolas and uh, had instigated sort of a, a long relationship between London and and Austin. Incredible. Uh, yeah, and and I taught object relations. Uh, and super, I did a lot of supervision around object relations focused Winnicott. Searle's gun trip, uh, that whole in British independent object relations, and then Masood Khan, Christopher Ballas. So I was doing more, I would say, psychoanalytic group, was really quite inspired by Yvonne Agazarian, who, in my mind, was actually with her emphasis on really working in the here and now, only in the here and now. I thought that was really quite revolutionary. And that it really kind of paired with some of my own interest in starting a psychodynamic group with 10 minutes of mindfulness on the front end and 10 minutes of metaprocessing on the back end. So, and yet I differed from Yvonne. I, I, I don't want to entirely work in the here and now. Uh, I don't like working out of the room, but I think that Context is important. As humans, we are storytellers. We can get lost in our narrative, and we can stand by our narrative whether or not it has any accuracy, which often doesn't really support healing. However, we 
we do sometimes have to connect our, our, our experience with the context in which it's arising. And so I just began to kind of take pieces here and there. It's interesting, when I came back from India, I was in India, I think I spent my 21st birthday in silence in a monastery in, in, in India, came back home to my mother who had just finished seven years of psychoanalysis and said to her, Mama, now that you've done seven years of psychoanalysis, and I had just come back, actually I had, I had been up in Dharamsala, I had met with Tibetans, I was blown away by their resilience in the face of the, the genocide that they were running from, fleeing from. And I said, Mama, you know, so now you've done seven years of psychoanalysis, do seven years of Buddhist training, see what that does. And I was being kind of, you know, a cocky kid, and she took me up on it. And so I was delighted because it was actually the integration that I was hungry for. Mm. And so I've really stayed with that. I think I work, wrote my first paper on Zen and the art of psychotherapy in 1974. I don't think I've gone very far from where I, you know, from where I started, except for that I, you know, I'm a bit of a science geek. And so I can kind of get a little, you know, geeked out on the neuroscience. And I, and I love teaching all of it. I love, framing all that. I love Porges's work and Bessel van der Kolk's work. And I also studied with Alan Shore, um, Dan Siegel. And I think that that, what we needed in order to integrate group work and, and contemplative practice was the neuroscience that then informed contemplative science, that we needed the neuro piece to come on board. And it was interesting, because I, I know uh, Francesco Varela, who was one of the founders of the Mind and Life Institute, had to sort of convince His Holiness that um, that quantum physics were, wasn't really where it was at, that you know cognitive neuroscience would be far more exciting from the perspective of how we look at the nervous system, and we look at the brain, and look at the, the changes in the brain that... Uh, contemplative practice can yield long-term cont- contemplative practice, even just eight weeks of practice. So our programs are all eight-week programs. Um, well, not the group therapy, the longer ongoing group process work, but uh, the actual contemplative immersion trainings. So, I mean, that's just kind of how I think about it, and I think it's a really exciting time. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I'm you know, it's it was interesting for me to move to, to Boulder. I'm so excited to be here, although last year I was on four continents. Um, now I'm really rooted. I'm here. But I think, you know, Boulder has a beautiful, and I'm super excited about the Boulder Group Psychotherapy or the Colorado Group Psychotherapy Association because there is that gentle ease or that, that curiosity, that deeply embedded curiosity about integrating practice. And as a form of well-being, as a form of, as a pathway to neural integration. I also think that, you know, I've long thought that the virtues that different religious structures contemplate, you know, and they're, they're similar and different in each tradition. But in each tradition, you'll find some scripture that will talk about the virtues of heart and mind. Um, that are important to cultivate. And I actually think that these are roadmaps for well-being. And that when we think of generosity, when we think of um, loving kindness or compassion, moral ethicism, 
when we think of charity, when we think of fidelity, when we think of certain kinds of, in Islam it's, there's an emphasis on mercy. We think of these, these virtues that have arisen across cultures. It's kind of, here are some guideposts for well-being, for an integrated life. Here, do these practices. It's up to you. Mm-hmm. And they're really virtues that grow out of a particular kind of state of awareness or a way of being kind of rooted in states of coherence within yes, the nervous system? absolutely. And optimal arousal right. within the nervous system. And, yeah, and that as we, you know, the, while I had said earlier that there's always problems with research and there's, you know, problems with mindfulness research, we're doing some research right now that I'm excited about. But across, there's a, a wonderful article that I'll share with you, Angelo. It's kind of like a meta-analysis of mindfulness research. And it talks about, you know, honestly and transparently talks about the difficulties with, with this kind of research. But it does say one thing, that across the board, even though there's difficulties, there are three things that mindful awareness practice actually cultivates. And these three things are the precursors or are components, I would say, to self-regulation. And it's emotional regulation, attention control, and self-awareness. So those three pathways yield self-regulation. You know, and group therapy, focusing in the room, focusing maybe in my groups, we, we start with 10 minutes of mindfulness to kind of deepen and kind of cross the boundary into the working group with a certain quality of attention. So it's bringing that attention into the present and tracking the body in the moment. A proprioceptive capacity, even just tracking the body, the breath, the way I'm sitting in this chair, the way my chest may move or my gut might feel as you say this, Angelo, or, you know, Mary said that. Tracking the moment and having a facilitator who's or a, a, a group therapist who is very embodied and rooted in their own self-regulation can more easily attune, can more easily have non-judgmental attention, and can more easily facilitate a group that can also then be a crucible or you know the, the framework for deepening self-regulation for the group members. Mm -hmm. So it sort of becomes the lab that limbically, it's a neural exercise we're moving towards. And very important, again, and this is why we do so much work with counselors and school counselors and humanitarian aid workers, for those of us who are in the field, to put our own oxygen masks on first. Right. Yeah. And I'm so interested in us talking about some of the humanitarian work before we move into that, I'm, I'm struck by, it sounds like really as a part of your frame, beginning with mindfulness versus other group processes that people just come in, sit down, and the group leader says, we're in process. You start off with 10 minutes of mindfulness, and I'd be really curious, with your years of group experience, if you could speak to anything you've noticed in terms of how that 10 minutes of mindfulness affects the group process once it becomes international, 
versus when a group just begins interactional without that kind of pause? Yeah, well, it's, I think it really, the framework around that is that deeper work can happen when there's more self-regulation and more self-awareness, right? So to take that pause and actually do the work becomes like a transitional space between whatever was going on before stepping into the group and then, and that you are beginning the group at that point. But when the here and now work, interactive, interpersonal work begins. So this is kind of, I think of group, I listen, my framework for listening in group as the group leader is that I listen on three levels, interpsychically, interpersonally, and group as a whole. So providing that structure on the front end is an instruction and an invitation, please come here. Let go of the traffic, let go of the phone call or the text that you were on five minutes ago. Do your work of getting present so that we as a, as a group might be more with each other. And then I use the 10 minutes at the end with the assumption that each of us uh, brings ourselves into the group with the capacity to drive the mechanisms of the group or to inhibit the mechanisms of the group. And that, in that sense, that each person ha- in their membership role has an authority and has the capacity to intervene. It's not just the leader, right? So I will ask in the last 10 minutes for us to widen the lens back, which is kind of like saying, let's mentalize here, which is sort of a different cortical structure than the experience of being in the moment. And let's explore surprises, satisfactions, disappointments, new learnings, or intervention comments or questions of the leader and other members. Mm. So for the last 10 minutes, the group really goes through a collaborative process yeah. of self-reflecting yeah. on what had just occurred. Yeah, yeah. Wonderful. Yeah. And um, that process has is exciting for me because I find also that the group members get to validate other group members about important and useful you know, interventions that group members have offered and, and sort of generously given into the space, the working space of the group. I also learn so much. I mean, it's, uh, I'm, it, I'm, it's not just my voice that says, well, this is what happened. It can't be. Well, there was a wonderful TED Talk by a Nigerian woman by, named Chimamanda Adichie called The Danger of a Single Story. And I really think that as a group, we have to learn, each of us, not just the leader, how to listen interpsychically, interpersonally, and group as a whole. And so that's kind of the instruction for that time is to widen back and say together, what what do we do? Because <laughs> it's really we. Mm-hmm. Well, and I love how you speak to those three things that you're tracking, intrapsychic, interpersonal, and group as a whole. Yeah. Would you say just a few words about each of those? Yeah, well, and, and there's and there's another arc that I would I would talk about in the the group as a whole framework. There's a developmental arc in each of these segments, right? So there's, a, there's the developmental arc of the intrapsychic, right? I may be a 62-year-old woman, and in this moment I may be actually feeling something that's old or historical, and that's kind of arising for me, and it may be not really present, but something has triggered it, right? So I've got 
I am participating from my intrapsychic self, from my intrapersonal self. It's my subjectivity to each unfolding moment, right? I'm also, as a member, engaged with my other members and my leader, right? So there's an interpersonal component. I'm jealous of Susie. I'm turned on by Fred. I'm curious and concerned about Joey. I'm, I might reach out to Joey and say, hey, you've been really quiet. What's up? Now, I'm speaking from the voice of a member, actually, mm-hmm. more than from the, group, the, the voice of the therapist. The group as a whole is that, um, and I'm going to speak more from the therapist voice in, in exploring the group as a whole, because it's something I might be more familiar with than, than many of, uh, of your listeners. And that is that there's a developmental arc to what occurs in a group. We start, and, and, and whether the group is a 10-year group, a 6-year group, an eight-week group or two-day group, whether it's an institute at AGPA or it's an ongoing, you know, in your office, these people have been together since shortly before Christ, you know, <laughs> and I have some of those. <laughs> but there's like, there's a, there's a beginning phase that, and I think Yalom talked about it really well, but I, I think about it a little bit differently. I really like Paul Kay at AGPA's um, developmental group model which I use, and Paul has been my co-therapist uh, with, for the last few years, uh, co-leading institutes. And we look at the sort of member membership anxiety and then kind of looking at the membership anxiety. There's, there's typically a fair amount of um, glossing over differences in order to belong, right? Or I don't, I don't want to, you know, come into this with too much heat because I might get kicked out of this. Right, so there's kind of a membership anxiety, which is asking the questions: Can I be safe here? Can I belong here? Can I be a part of this? And then at some point, we're gonna we're gonna morph into: Can I be a part of this? And can I belong here? But can I be here with my differences? Can I be here with the parts of me you may not like, and maybe the parts of myself that I don't like? So I there, so there might be more aggression that comes into the space at that point. And then there's like from there, I think, is the possibility of of, of a truer intimacy. You know, a more a more informed around the realness of where we connect and where we really are different. You know, and then then there's a terminating phase, right? So there's, and we can move in back and forth developmentally. From a group as a whole perspective, the therapist may be thinking about the developmental tasks of the group, or maybe thinking about subgroups that there's that there's a longing or, or a felt sense of something that's being voiced over here, and maybe there's silence over here. So how does the group as a whole want to hold that? So it's almost like you're giving personhood to the group. I, I read something beautiful and posted it on Facebook recently about, I think it's in New Zealand, where they've, they've granted personhood to rivers, which is really an interesting concept if you think about it. So in the group as a whole view, it's, a, it's in a sense that we grant personhood to the group. And the group as a whole has an arc. It has a, it has a life. You know? So this group, this system, not unlike the river that you're talking yeah. about, this very dynamic, fluid thing, yeah. is also in its own way an entity. Yes, yes. And, it, and it, is, it is more than and comprised of the sum of its parts. And subgroups are part of that. Yeah. yeah. Wonderful.
it's such a rich description that you just gave of your kind of theoretical stance as a group leader. And I would love to hear how you kind of take that view and have used it to inform some of the incredible humanitarian work. And it really sounds like this humanitarian work has been a part of your professional and personal life from the very beginning. You've talked about your work with the Tibetan refugees. And I also understand that you do a lot of work with the refugee camps in Northern Africa. So I'd love to hear... No, actually, Northern Uganda. Northern not, Uganda. It's Sub-Saharan. It's not Northern Africa, though. Oh, thank yeah. you for the clarification. Yeah. So Northern Uganda. Yeah. Um, I'd love to hear how you have really kind of parlayed this group experience, this very rich group experience, into some of your humanitarian work, as well as if you could provide any kind of orienting coordinates to what is actually going on in that area in the world. Mm. I think there's a, an appreciation for the enormous mm. refugee mm. crisis we're in globally. Mm. Mm-hmm. But you seem to really have some real experience and depth of knowledge about that refugee crisis in particular in northern Uganda. Yeah. I wondered if you could speak to that. Sure, I'd be, be honored to. I think you said it so well, Angelo. You know, what do we have? 65 million refugees in the world. It's the biggest migration of people in human history. It surpasses post-World War II. And globally, it's catastrophic. And it's not just catastrophic for now. It's catastrophic multi-generationally. And we know from uh, research in South and Central America with, you know, lots of uh, refugee movement in South America, and also the presence of unaccompanied youth moving through nations. The vulnerability in, in, in Central and South America, the vulnerability for young young children or young adolescents who are unaccompanied as, as part of this larger refugee crisis is the incredibly heightened vulnerability to gang recruitment. And I think the parallel in the Middle East, Africa, and Europe is recruitment to to terrorist groups. So we have fractured families, unaccompanied youth, terror, un, unabated terror, and we have ex- you know I've I've tracked some horrifying stories in the UN camps, for example, in South Sudan, where even the UN camps were not safe. You know where tribal warfare busted out in the camps. The UN peacekeepers fled their posts, barricaded themselves in. There was massacres, which then created another flood coming into northern Uganda. So even these refugee camps became sites of trauma. Yeah, and that was actually, we were doing two trainings in in Uganda, hosted by Makarira University, which is the biggest university in East Africa. And the first week was actually the CGP training. With, and we added in, the neurobiology of trauma, and some contemplative practice. So we kind of mixed it up a little. I just had to, like, tell my AGPA colleagues that we went and did that, Um, which I think was really important because a lot of the participants, it was about 75 to 80, mostly humanitarian aid workers, ended up that they couldn't come for the second week, which was actually my, my curriculum. And the reason was this particular devastating emergency that then pushed another 20,000 refugees into northern Uganda. Because if the UN can't keep them safe, then who can't, right? So they had to, they again, fled. 
So there's there's terrifying and horrifying stories that just you see them, you know, even in the camps, and, and this is true in northern Uganda, when young girls go out beyond the camp walls to collect firewood, they're targets for rape, sexual assault. And this is true. I mean, pretty much every young woman now who, every young Tibetan woman who tries to flee Tibet coming into Nepal is also a target of rape. I mean, you see this kind of rape as a tool of war, just so pronounced, just the the hits on civilians are catastrophic. And so you see this in the Middle East, you see this moving into Europe, you see this coming into Africa. In northern Uganda, what what there is is a huge influx of refugees from South Sudan. South Sudan separated from Sudan about four years ago, I think it was, and with all kinds of altruistic hope about creating what wasn't Sudan, which was a lot of tribal war. And they may have surpassed Sudan in the brutality towards civilians that have, has now occurred. And so it's just a very tragic situation. Then the most vulnerable are always women and children. And they're, as we know from trauma research, they're always the most vulnerable to the development of PTSD. So when you have a, an issue of this scale, like, for example, in Jordan, there is a Syrian refugee camp with 360,000, I believe now, Syrian refugees and one psychiatrist. You can't do one-on-one -on -one work with the crisis of this scope, of this magnitude. It would be unethical to consider that you could, because if you could see you know, maybe 50 people in a week. What about, you know, the other 255,000 <laughs> that are in your vicinity, in your 10-mile vicinity? So this is where group is a perfect framework for offering a healing modality and offering a modality that can transcend culture, that is not going to offend this group or that group or be threatening or scary or or um, prohibited across cultures. So we did a training in the capital for 80 humanitarian aid workers. And it was four days. We basically covered the neurobiology of trauma, taught people how to teach breathwork and grounding, led them through a menu of six contemplative practices that included intention setting, embodied mindful awareness, and compassion practice. And then taught them how to teach it in group. And then taught also how to do a non-traumatizing interview to track the body and to teach these skills even in the process of an initial intake so that the refugee, instead of just saying, I don't know where my husband is, my children are dead, and I've been raped, can actually first ground themselves, breathe, and not tell the story mm -hmm. until they feel a certain calm. So they're not getting flooded, actually. Yeah, yeah. The, the interview was really yeah. helping them actually yeah. start to regulate. Yeah. 
And what happens is that there's an, and I, I had like put this together after I was working in the Tibetan community, and I had met with the executive director of an organization called Bujisam, which is particularly for political prisoners who've been tortured. And we were doing a, a documentary film called Tibetan Stories. It's online. You can find it. It's, it's really a very beautiful offering. If I do say so myself, I mean, I think the offering is really our subjects. They offered their time to, to share their stories. But I wanted to do a particular 10-minute vignette on six political prisoners who'd been, who'd been tortured. But I went directly to the executive director to tell him my intention and to tell him that I wasn't even going to let my filmmaker do the interviews because it was so important to me that they were not re-traumatized because journalists come through all the time and want a hot, sexy story about somebody who's been tortured. I mean, it's, it's exploitative, you know, and it's re-traumatizing. And so he said, I'm really kind of moved by your sensitivity. It's very unusual. We don't experience that. All kinds of journalists or would-be journalists come through, and even in our own social service agencies, nobody really knows how to do an interview. And I said, would you gather 10 of your social service agencies together, and I will actually do a training called the therapeutic interviews so that they, we can teach, put your own oxygen mask on first is really the guideline, but teach people how to ground themselves first before they're doing an interview, and then teach those skills to the refugee that they're interviewing. So that the story takes longer, the trauma story. But there's been so much emphasis on the trauma story and not any emphasis on the risk of re-traumatization in the telling of the trauma story. So we use these, you know, if we have six contemplative skills that are kind of like Legos stacked in a protocol, we use just the first two for simple, for developmental, like for children or in the aftermath of a crisis or in the midst of a crisis or in a therapeutic interview. So, you know, we, we teach the neurobiology of, of trauma. We teach how to teach it one-on-one. We teach how to teach it in a group. But we pre- predominantly teach put your own oxygen mask on first. And then we do an eight-week follow-up with the humanitarian aid workers to develop a daily practice with on-the-cushion practices, with audio recording, and off-the-cushion daily prompts online. And so they get really grounded. And the research on the lifespan of a humanitarian aid worker, the career lifespan of a humanitarian aid worker is three years because they get overwhelmed, because they use empathy. And sort of there's a big debate here about empathy versus compassion. And so we teach ways to focus on cultivating compassion as opposed to empathy and do a lot of training on the difference between emotional contagion Empathy and compassion. Mm, wonderful. Yeah. I'm struck by several things that you're talking about. One, it sounds like this curriculum is really targeted towards helping these humanitarian aid workers become really regulated, integrated group leaders and interviewers yeah. such that they're able to hold that space yeah. for the group process, mm-hmm. for the interview process, mm-hmm. to be healing, mm-hmm. to, be, to bring about some kind of resolution to the trauma. And I'm also thinking back to what you're talking about in terms of group as a whole. And really, that group does seem like such a fantastic modality for this because the groups are a microcosm for what is really a macrocosm of um, a traumatized community. 
So these groups really facilitate a kind of healing of a trauma that is so shared and communal in scope. Yes, absolutely. So well said, Angelo, absolutely. And it's really exciting. You know, I was able to bring one of our key group leaders to AGPA. Like, he came to, like, New York, you know. (laughs) He was, he got the U.S. Embassy turned down his first application for visa, and he was so moved about getting his scholarship and, you know, his full ride at the Sheraton and his airplane ticket covered. But he didn't have any money to reapply for the visa because you sort of see these unbelievable cultural disparities, right? So he was like, hey, I'm just, I'm determined to make this happen. I want to be with you in New York. I want to come meet all of my, my brothers and sisters in, 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 in New York City at AGVA. <laughs> he goes, I will have to sell one of my bulls. <laughs> and I was like, Isaac, you are not selling one of your bulls. I mean, leave, leave your livestock alone. No, uh-uh. I, I'll, I'm covering that. Like, mm. no way. You're not selling one of what, you know, your precious livestock. <laughs> like, that's how important it was to him. Right. He was so moved to have this opportunity. He said to me, I want to be the best group therapist in, in Uganda. I was like, you know, why stop at Uganda? Be the best one in Africa. <laughs> and he was like, we laughed and laughed. <laughs> yeah, so there's a lot of excitement about the applicability of using these, we call them the contemplative-based trauma and resiliency or the portable calm is what I actually call it these portable calm skills. And we have a children's protocol called Calming Minds, and we have an adult protocol. I also was invited in November and December to do an adaptation of this curriculum for the UN. And I'm really excited. Uh, My colleagues were amazing. I just, one of them's here in Boulder, and another one is a researcher at the University of New York in Rochester. And another is a French human rights attorney who's a UN peacekeeper. And we called it Inner Peacekeepers. And my, in my memory, it's for those peacekeepers who who were so terrified in in South Sudan that they fled their posts. It's like, what if they had had some training, you know, that would have enabled them to actually serve the community? They they, they would have served if they weren't so terrified. I don't have any judgment. It's just that they needed skills they didn't have. Mm-hmm. So this protocol, inner peacekeepers, is going to be. Busted out in April in Jordan and and throughout the Middle East. So it's like it's going to be moved into place. And I'm really excited about that, that there's hunger for it, that that the time is right, and that the scale of our problem is is so enormous. It's like when I think about Uganda in particular, central Uganda is where the source of the Nile is, and all that water, that, that giving life river, that is historic to human history, goes from central Uganda, touches 11 nations, and comes out in the Mediterranean. Mm-hmm. The Nile Delta is like 150 miles wide. It's this huge source of life. And now the refugees from those 11 countries are flooding in the opposite direction, southward into Uganda, for life, mm-hmm. for survival. Well, I'm so struck by everything you've done, Gail, on such an international level. 
and I'm thinking about you having been in four continents last year, and I also realized that it seems like you're rooting more in Boulder, yeah. and you know, as the Colorado Group Society, yeah. we're so excited to have you yeah. really rooted more here and be bringing your experience and expertise here. I wonder if you would touch on where you see yourself going and what you're envisioning for your private practice here and uh, just where you'd like to see yourself go from here. Well, thank you for asking that question. It's really lovely. It's, it feels additionally welcoming. Um, I know when I first got here, I was able to go out to dinner with you and leadership of Colorado, of course, with Mark and Jenna. And I've sort of held you guys in my heart ever since. And, and it seems like my home has now been kind of a, a place of, you know, we can gather, we can gather, we can gather. We did that before AGPA, and we're going to do that again next coming Saturday. Um, You know, I see what I want to do here in Boulder is to to establish a a private practice here that I'll be doing groups, I'll be doing a lot of clinical supervision, and I'll be keeping that practice kind of small intentionally so that I still can be available for the mentoring role that I have with our international work. I'm not wanting to travel like I have in the past, and particularly last year. Last year was like a a sabbatical year for me, so I literally was on four continents. But now I want to just be rooted in Boulder and do a lot of good group work and build my private practice and be available for supervision. I I love doing supervision groups. I have one supervision group in Austin who's been going for 25 years. Oh, wow. Yeah, so it's kind of one of my passions, I think. So if people uh, that are listening into this interview might be interested in being a part of your supervision group or following up with you, what would be the best ways for them to be in touch with you and contact with you to reach you? G-A-E-A-L-O-G-A-N at gmail.com. Wonderful. Yeah, you can just reach me through my email. Probably the easiest way to reach me to you know set up some initial way to connect and see if we're a good fit. Perfect. Yeah. Well, Gay, I just want to thank you so much for your time and uh, your willingness to come on the podcast and to share with us this incredible experience and all of these, this amazing work you've been doing. It's so inspiring. Thank you so much. I feel honored to be here, and, and it's always a delight to be with you. And, and, you know, to just to be in conversation, I think, is one of the big delights in life, isn't it? It is. Yeah. It absolutely is. It draws so many of us to this field yeah. to begin with, Yeah, right? absolutely. Thank you, Gay. Thank you, Angela.